0: Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk: The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Alajba. Good evening. In our book, we discuss the case of Alexis Ochoa, a healthy 19-year-old woman who died when a nurse practitioner failed to properly diagnose her. What is particularly worrisome about this case is that when Alexis was brought to the emergency room by ambulance, the only medical practitioner working there was a nurse practitioner. Unfortunately, this situation is occurring in hospitals across the country. Physicians are being replaced with non-physician practitioners, and patients often have no idea. Tonight, we are being joined by two emergency physicians who have become aware of this trend and are publicly speaking out about their concerns. Dr. Thomas Cook and Dr. Jason Adler, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. The two of you have co-authored several really excellent pieces about this issue in emergency medicine, among others. Tell us, how did you guys start collaborating together?
1: I think Jason did that. I've been writing for Emergency Medicine News for about eight years. And uh, over the last couple of years, uh, I turned my attention to the issue of more and more advanced practice providers as sort of taking the place of emergency physicians for for a number of different reasons and sort of pressures in the in the workforce. Jason unfortunately had been subjected to reading some of my some of my work and and found a common cause, and he he reached out to me by by email, sort of a cold email, and we started t- uh, emailing and, and talking and and like two two strange lovers, we sort of sort of figured out, oh my goodness we have a lot in common and uh, i think uh, you know we have similar families and, and similar marriages and children and also we have sort of similar viewpoints but we come at it from different, different angles so it, it was it was a marriage born and and i've never met jason so it, it even makes it more interesting we've only we've only collaborated by by email and in uh, the occasional zoom
2: so that's a true story it was a, it was a cold email i'd spent the past several years Working in a number, uh, in, I work in emergency medicine, but I'm also very much involved in practice management, industry trends. I actually have a reimbursement background with the coding side that will really put you to sleep right away. But in that world, I've noticed these trends and, and Tom's articles really resonated with me. He was talking about the increase specific to emergency medicine, the increase in graduates that were coming out through residency and looking at the bigger picture, bringing in the reimbursement and the practice management side. The general trend that I, I've been noticing is that reimbursements are dropping on the commercial side. You've got surprise medical billing. You've got some bad payer behavior on the public side. Uh, you have Medicare cuts that seem to be happening more and more. The states, especially with COVID, we're dropping, are going to end up dropping the Medicaid budgets, usually one of the top three line items of every state. And at the same time that's happening, you have a, a workforce of clinicians, an increased number of emergency physicians. And also nurse practitioners and all these things are coming together. It's dropping reimbursements, dropping pay and increasing number of clinicians. And and we were talking about the contraction of the industry within emergency medicine. So different perspectives for Tom and myself, but it sort of paints different pieces of a larger chessboard.
3: You know, it's interesting to talk about the um, contraction of the field and the only reason I'm, you know, my father started in practice in 1971 and there was no emergency medicine. And so if you get a group of older doctors together, they used to talk about how they each were assigned a night to work the quote emergencies that came in. It wasn't even the quote emergency room. It was simply this idea that if I cover your patients, then, I, then on the nights I'm not here, you'll cover mine. And it's this sort of quid pro quo. And he had talked about this patient with a heart attack that came in and he had done radiology, family medicine, and pediatrics actually in his total training. And he sort of was um, chuckling later when he had to call someone for help. He said, look, I can't be alone in the emergency room anymore as a pediatrician. It makes no sense. I need somebody who has experience for when the heart attacks come in. And so what I find fascinating is he witnessed the expansion of, and the need for well-trained emergency physicians. So I was wondering beyond funding, which I completely agree is part of the problem. Do you think it's that people think it's easy? Do you think that other physicians, I mean, I think most physicians respect emergency medicine, but what is it that's leading to this shrinking of your profession after we've witnessed an expansion 50 years, 40 years ago?
1: I probably should have clarified earlier in my, in my real life, I'm a, I'm a residency director. I've been running the same residency for 20 years and had over 200 residents. For 20 years, when people ask me the questions, you know, do your graduates get jobs? It's, it's like, uh, yes, it's a no-brainer. It's very easy. It, it, it has been a feast for us for the 30 years of the specialty in which there's been very, very high demand and not enough supply. And even uh, the Institute of Medicine back in, you know, 15 years ago put out this, you know, st- very blatant uh, statement in their report, which says we'll never get there. Was basically what they said. And this is detailed by Bennett's paper, which came out in Annals of Emergency Medicine this past December. But just recently, we had the uh, the, the same group of people looking at this and saying, oh, we're going to hit this in the next 10 years. Supply will exceed demand. And then uh, just recently, another paper comes out and says, whoops, we're there. Supplies uh, is going to meet demand. And so we're in a, in a place we've never been in our lives. My 13 residents per class and, and 12 of them have gotten jobs, but it, it has been more of a struggle, it has been more of them talking to more and more employers about this. It's about them sort of going, well, maybe I'll have to go to a to to corporate EM to kind of get my job, which most of them are a little bit leery of that. And I still have one one senior resident who still sort of not hasn't found anything that really sort of suits him. And this just didn't exist a few years ago. Uh and largely it's just because of the huge number of of EM healthcare providers that sort of exist now. That combined with a pandemic, which has decreased patient census across the board, and people have gotten comfortable with telemedicine and and talking to physicians and healthcare providers by Zoom and so forth. The other thing that's pretty interesting, which we can maybe dive into a little bit later if you're interested, is we've just gone through a match, Uh, this this annual ritual of the spring of which I've I've done it 20 times. It's interesting that 25% of the applicants to emergency medicine did not match. Now, think about that for a second. On the one end, you have residents graduating, having a hard time getting into the profession, but still on the other side, there's enormous interest to go into this specialty to the point where a quarter of them, one in four, get blanked on match day. You can see right there that this is just an, another added pressure to an already pressure cooker situation where people can't get jobs and still more people are coming in you know, through the door trying to get, get this this type of work. So it
0: is so interesting. In fact, so I pulled some of the articles that you guys have written. So just to recap what you said, emergency medicine is a relatively new specialty. It was just founded 43 years ago. And as Naran pointed out, it really went through its expansion to the point where, as you mentioned, the Institute of Medicine had predicted 15 years ago, they said that the supply of emergency physicians might never reach demand. But then just 10 years later, they said, well, maybe we can get enough doctors in about five or 10 years. And then fast forward now to just last year, where now supposedly the supply exceeds the demand. So you guys went through an outline, some of the reasons why you thought that, and you mentioned the increase in medical schools, the increase in residencies. But you also talk a lot about the growth of advanced practice. Well, you call them advanced practice professionals. I call them non-physician practitioners in emergency departments. And can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in that trend?
2: Yeah, I mean, hospitals like using them. There's there's no question about that. And they certainly have a role in the world with, with which we live. But at the same time, there are obviously some issues there on both sides of the fence, right? We've talked about, in our articles, we talked about some educational variances from a lack of consistency across training in some of the new, newer generations. You talk about public safety and, and reporting to the Board of Nursing. There's been conversations about training and the lack of standardized, one standardized system. And it seems as though some hospitals may be taking advantage of that because, because it's a lower rate to increase The number of people on the floor per square foot of hospital space, and and we don't really know what that means in the end for the patient or for cost to the healthcare system or anything else, raises more questions than it does answers.
1: I think also, if you look at our last two columns, in February, we published a column based on a US News and World Report, and they were sort of bragging about it, ironically, which the, the title of it was like, these 10 schools will give you a doctorate of nurse practitioner and they accept all applicants. So immediately, I am a little bit intimidated by that because my immediate thought is like, well, do they accept all applicants to become nuclear engineers and into police academies and to uh, be, become airline pilots and all sorts of other things? And, and this is a little spooky. And when we started to investigate and look at some of these schools, what exactly they were doing, it even got more concerning where you know some of these schools, the tuition to get a doctorate of nurse practitioner was $1,000. And so the bar to entry was, look, apply, you'll get in, and it don't cost much. And then the, the subsequently, well, the most concerning one was one affiliated with Purdue University, where they had 500 students in a class. My goodness, how do you vet 500 people and all of them are have the ability to practice independently? I, f- I find this amazing having interviewed over 3,000 medical students. Yeah, how do
0: you vet program. them? You don't, because that's just not possible and then even further how do you educate that many people and how do you make sure that they're getting proper training as i look at this i start thinking about really the vicious cycle and you guys have written quite a bit about the corporatization of medicine and the fact that a lot of these private equity firms really enjoy employing non-physician practitioners because they can pay them less and they can maybe hire a few emergency physicians to supervise increasing numbers of them, or in some States they can practice independently. And then what that does is increase the demand because these corporations are hiring. So now we need to graduate more students. And so then the quality of the programs decreases and it really becomes a vicious cycle.
1: Well, that was, that was a lot of what we were talking about in in our article this month, where we were actually looking at the number of States that would allow nurse practitioners to practice independently. And it, it, there was a, a humongous movement in this uh, la, late last year when California, our largest state, after years of sort of vicious battling, allowed nurse practitioners to practice independently after some period of time of, of, of what they referred to as supervision. But the, what we pointed out was um, there are 31 states right now that allow a nurse practitioner to practice independently. And that about half of those states, all you need is to graduate from school. This is a two-year curriculum. It might be entirely online. There's, there's no accreditation process like ACGME. There's, there's no way to sort of validate what clinical experience they've had. They don't take USMLE exams one, two, three. They don't take MCATs. Uh, they don't have to compete with all those other smarty pants uh, undergraduate students to get into medical school. And oh, by the way, if they don't like what they're doing today, tomorrow they can decide to be a nephrology or cardiology or pediatrics or anything else. A physician doesn't have that luxury. In fact, when we graduate in every state that I'm aware of, you have to finish at least a three-year residency to practice independently. Nurse practitioners don't. This, This is incredible. How did we get to this place?
3: Well, that's the question. And I was going to ask, since you're part of education, you know, number one, how did we get to this place? And now what do we do? I mean, especially in emergency medicine, you know, there aren't really emergency trained nurse practitioners there are some acute care nurse practitioners. I understand that. But as far as to work in an emergency room, unsupervised and alone, and I would extend that to even urgent cares. I mean, how did this happen? And what do we do about it? Because it's exploding.
1: Well, we get a lot of people who write to us and, you know, say the same thing, you know, sort of it's what what are we going to do in the collective way? And a lot of people are looking to ACG and me to control it. And ACG being the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, which oversees all postgraduate education in the United States. And my conversations with leadership there are, look, we're just an accrediting body. We we just set the standards. We can't police who who creates a residency, who doesn't create a residency and those kinds of things. And so there was an explosion. I mean, it's, it's not just corporatization in terms of getting APPs in. It's corporatization in terms of hire and train and retain is their motto. And, and so they want to get as many emergency physicians as possible in their pipeline. Irrespective of the fact that they're also at the same time going to be putting APPs in those positions, where do all the graduates go? I mean, the average uh, debt burden for a, for a medical student these days is about a quarter million dollars. That's a house for crying out loud. These guys care about that? I doubt it.
0: And as you pointed out, a lot of medical students did not match. I, When I looked at the numbers for this year, this last match, it seemed to me like about 4,000 medical students. And of those, at least 2,000 of them were United States seniors. So there's supposedly a physician shortage that we need all these APPs. So what about these two to 4,000 physicians, potential physicians that now don't have a residency spot?
2: You just hit the nail on the head. You talk about time, effort and and work for years, assuming debt, putting in, putting in the time. And then what do you do when you, when you don't match it's, it's crushing to the soul to know that, that there's so many people out there that just don't have that opportunity and now would have to find a gap year or something else to just, you're assuming all this debt anyway. I mean, I, I just can't imagine what that must feel like. And there's so many slices to this, this giant picture here. And we're, we're focusing on little ones here and there. I, I, just, I just keep thinking about the patient and emergency medicine, how, how it's changed over the years. You know, we have the silver tsunami with 10 plus thousand people joining Medicare, the program per day. These patients are medically complex, more so than they ever have been in the past. You have urgent cares, retail clinics that are just siphoning off the low acuity patients Mm -hmm. and really just leaving the sickest of the sick that are coming in to the emergency departments. And, you know, you see a a geriatric patient with a weakened disease, that's not something you can just halo in out of an online program and just manage. It's it's just, that takes, there's a lot of time and a lot of effort and, and experience to get to that point. And it makes me a little bit... My, my senses go up when you, you have the potential for a very different type of experienced clinician to be taking care of these patients. Think about your, your family members and what you would want for them, and what you know from the inside looking out. I, I work alongside nurse practitioners in my current job. I worked alongside PAs in my old job. And all in my personal experience, I, I found them, everyone that I worked with has been outstanding, was in that five to 10 plus years of experience block, really high quality care and really thoughtful with the medical decision-making. There is in the newer generation, I, I think there is because of these training programs the way that they 've accelerated so fast there 's more uh, variation in what is being pushed out, and with that absence some kind of formalized process of credentialing like on the like the boards right you 'd have a national board. And individual state rules, you really don't know what you're working with when you make that hiring. You know, Tom just talked about 13 residents a year for 20 years, and then one program this year pushed out 500 people with one program. That's that's vastly different. So the question is, what does that mean? What does it, what does it mean to the, I know what it means to the hospitals, right? I know what it means to the people who have the opportunity to make a good living doing, before assuming that role. What does it mean for the patients? What does it mean to the cost of the healthcare system, right? And the, it's interesting because my, my friends that are nurse practitioners and, and very experienced, I ask them what they think of all of this. And when you really dive into it and, and they really look back, they're not, they're not very happy to see where the industry is going. There's a little bit of resentment in, in just the small cohort that I spoke with, just my friends, because they put their time in and they went through, put a lot of time in years to get to where they are today. And then you work with someone like that, and then you work with someone who just graduated right next to you. And and everyone has the same exact defined role in the department. And you talk about how sick these patients are, it's lots of moving parts.
0: Yeah. And we, we definitely hear from a lot of those nurse practitioners and physician assistants who trained in a different generation about how things have changed now. And I guess this is probably where now we're coming up with this new concept of quote, residency programs for non-physician practitioners. I have to put it in quotes because you guys know residency for physicians is a very different beast from what we're seeing for these non-physician practitioners. Tell us what you know about these new residency programs in emergency medicine.
1: Oh, this this, this is a, a- Total hot potato topic. So uh, this past match cycle, and I'm not familiar with the with the dark web and and and, and all these sort of things that go on. Ob- obviously, the generation of residents today; these young adults are much more facile at social media, and I I'm I'm leery of of the trouble you can get into in this. But uh, there were a couple of very prom- prominent university programs who, behind the program director's back, had started what essentially were emergency medicine, and and I use the quotation residencies for advanced practice providers. I think in in these, the cases I remember were physician assistants. And the word went out like a wildfire in which everybody said, boycott these programs. Do not go there. And so you, you really just sort of see this grassroots effort on the part of the residents just to say, what are you doing? You are screwing us big time because here I have Killed myself as an undergraduate. I've paid a lot of money to go through a very tough medical school. And you're giving them residency training, which, by the way, lasts a year and mine's three years. Uh, What are you doing? This is craziness. And, you know, I think about my my residents. We are one of the programs that allows them to moonlight. We have a very, what we consider a a safe moonlighting opportunity for them. And I know they've been working for two years in, in residency and four years of medical school. And they're still nervous to go out there for the first time, you know? And uh, here you have this other situation where where they're going, oh yeah, just, you know, go see a patient, figure something out. It's incredible. The bar is sinking so fast and we're just trying to figure out how to to find somebody who can just eke over the bar and fill that time slot. And they just don't know what they don't know.
2: Yeah. You're you're talking about nomenclature and that's the core of it is, is what, what is used and how do you represent yourself? And you know, in 2021, there's a lot of that going on in, in how people define themselves. But to Tom's point and, and Rebecca and Ron, the word residency means something. The word fellowship means something. The word doctor means something. And when you apply that in something that when people hear it, isn't like, I think when it's said out loud outwards, it's oftentimes projected in a way that the person who's listening hears it. I'm a doctor nurse practitioner. I know that Florida just passed a law like 1152 in the Senate that was about the ologist bill, right, is where nurse anesthetists cannot call themselves nurse anesthesiologists because those words matter. We keep talking about words that matter. So saying that you're residency trained has a traditional definition and implication to what you're saying residency training is. So it's, it's... It could be a truth if you go through one of these programs to say, no, I'm a residency trained emergency medicine specialist nurse practitioner. That may be a true statement. I'm not sure if that the general public would understand that to mean the same thing as I'm a board certified emergency physician.
0: I would no, say uh, not. Patients will not understand that. I'm pretty sure, and and we can speak about the case of Alexis Ochoa, who uh, was who met a person in a white coat and was under the impression that it was an emergency physician. Of course, it was a family nurse practitioner, but the patient didn't know better. And if they had known differently, maybe they would have sought other care. I, we don't know, but that transparency is important. A physician residency, at least in my day, was 80 to 100 hour work weeks for minimum of three years. And I believe that these residency quote programs for non-physician practitioners are like 40 hour work weeks for a year, five days a week, weekends off, that kind of thing. So there are no way the same kind of level of responsibility or intensity as what physicians go
2: through. You know what? I I don't want that. I don't want that for me. I I could tell you, you know, I've never said my residency was too easy. I had a hard residency and I'm so thankful for that every single day. I really mean that. I had some grueling months. I'm sure everyone on this call had some grueling months, and that's what—that's where you earn your chops. And not to say people have to suffer. Not saying that at all. But you're—it's not the—it's not the age. It's—it's it's the mileage, and you earn a lot of mileage in those three years of training. And then you're ready to go out, and then you're terrified. And then you go through five years, and you're like, I think I got this. And then you get a little confident. And Then the next five years, you're terrified again. It's because of your experience and what you know. I just can't imagine again, going through a quick online program and then haloing down to an emergency department saying, here are, the, here are the keys to the kingdom, go for it.
3: Well, I love that that's what you're talking about because I'm old enough that I trained, actually Rebecca is the same, and you know we trained under the old system when there were no limit hours. And so you know, we, we put in a a boatload of hours and I remember covering, you know, 70 children at the children's hospital, uh, you know, every night on call and there were always codes and there weren't even enough ICU people to go around. I mean, again, these were, it was like trial by fire. And I think that is so, so important. And now we sort of have this idea that if you want to be a rural doc, you go work somewhere rural in residency. And I would disagree with that because I was just talking to a med student about this. And I said, you know, I did a month on the helicopter in Colorado. I landed on people's lawns. I did all sorts of procedures on adults even. And it was so valuable to think outside the box and to, to win and to lose. And like you said, to get slapped in the face over and over because that's what medicine is about. And I'm afraid that some of these folks come out, like you said, and and they're not adequately afraid. I mean, residency should make you afraid. It should make you strong, but it should it should make you realize that there are going to be a lot of face plants. And I think that's what's missing, to be honest. Uh, and, it, and a one-year residency can't compare to the three years we did. But it seems like a lot of these
0: academic centers are interested in these residency programs and this appropriation of nomenclature, as you mentioned. But we are seeing some academic emergency physicians pushing back. You guys are really leading the way. And your professional organizations actually recently signed a joint statement saying that, quote, the terms resident, residency, fellow and fellowship in a medical setting must be limited to postgraduate clinical training of medical school physician graduates within GME training programs and that physicians must lead patient care teams and training. So I personally want to thank you guys for standing up because many of our other professional organizations are kind of hanging back a little bit on that. And then I'll just point out that, of course, after the American Association of Emergency Physicians put out that statement, Then there was of course a rebuttal by the Emergency Nurses Association and the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. They published a joint statement and they refuted that position stating, quote, Our national organization strongly opposed the view that emergency care is solely, quote, physician led or that physicians should dictate education and practice standards for advanced practice registered nurses, which I think is so interesting because we're always hearing about, well, we need to be a team. We need to work together. And they're making it very clear. We don't need physicians. Physicians don't need to lead the care team. And in fact, you guys should have nothing to do with our training. Uh, What are your thoughts when you hear that?
1: Yeah, those, those two statements we, we put in one of our articles. And it, I could just see the nurse practitioners effectively sticking their tongues at us and, and saying, we're going to do what we want. And when you think about it, they've got every reason to say that because they're not afraid. They're regulated on, on the state level, not by anybody, but other nurses. They're not regulated by physicians who are you would have to say, are acknowledged as the experts in medical health care. They're managed or regulated rather by other nurses who, of course, are going to champion whatever it is that they want to accomplish. And 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 it's a conflict of interest. It's a horrible conflict of interest.
0: And we should point out that they're not held to the same standard of care as physicians when it comes to a medical malpractice case. And I think that's something important for patients to realize.
2: It's so complicated. It's so complicated. And there's so many layers It's easy to outline some of these problems in in different areas of uncertainty, but I I always go back to what what are the solutions? What what can we propose here? And I think from my perspective, having some form of governing body that's national, right? Similar to the American Board of Emergency Medicine, similar to the American Academy of Pediatrics that requires some form of required curriculum, at least to start that. And then you take a standardized exam. I'm not a big fan of exams, right? They've got their problems, but something that levels the playing field so that there's less variation from clinician to clinician. That's, that's, I think, one of the first steps. Then the states can have their role in governing what how, how much independent practice you have, but at least there's a standardized process, floor and ceiling of education that we all start with on day one. Two, I, I'm not really sure what to make of the governing body that you report to being the Board of Nursing, how they regulate the practice, independent practice of medicine from the Board of Nursing. I'm not, I'm not sure how that works. I know there were issues in California with some form of a potential, we'll just say issues, but there was that experience didn't work out too well. That strikes me as really unusual. And then some form of continuing maintenance of certification, right? You want to have some standardized process and maybe even specialty, specialty board certification, Mm -hmm. specialty exams. I think that would be interesting as well. So that, that would be my proposal as a top three, three things of what we could do to advance because it really is a team sport. I think the macroeconomics are not going to change. We can be an old man yelling at the clouds forever. But there's there's some challenges here. There's some real challenges. And money is a driver of many things for the healthcare systems, for the groups, for for everybody involved. And so how do you work better as a team? I do think in the future, we're going to have, you know, we've got a CMO, you've got a CNO. There'll probably be a chief nurse practitioner officer. I see that coming down the pike. I wouldn't be surprised there. And right now, where are they at? They're either flipping between the medical side or the nursing side. They don't really have a home. I think we could all be one big team. All work together in a physician led environment and go there. I'm not this us versus them thing has kind of got to go away. But I think that's a result of the lack of any formalized process to have that conversation.
0: Well, thank you so much. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Thomas Cook and Dr. Jason Adler, for helping to enlighten us as to some of the issues that are happening in emergency medicine today. If you'd like to learn more about these issues, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. And of course, we would love for you to subscribe to our podcast and to our YouTube channel. It's called Patients at Risk. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about helping out with this topic, and helping endorse physician led care, please join us physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast.